Thanks for tuning in to the Lake Forest Church Podcast. Lake Forest is a community for people who have given up on church, but not on God. If you'd like to learn more about our churches in Huntersville, Davidson, and Denver, North Carolina, you can check us out online at lakeforest.org. Well, good morning. My name is Aaron, one of the pastors here. Let me add my welcome to, well, hopefully you got greeted all the way from the parking lot, all the way through. And if you are an introvert, I apologize. We just like to create a warm, welcoming environment. Thanks for indulging the extroverts among us who like to say hi. Uh, If this is your first time, we're especially honored you're with us. Um, Let's start here. Uh, Imagine for a moment that you are driving down Highway 16. Uh, And this will be a little imagination exercise. Imagine a squad car pulls you over for going too fast. And you explain to the officer, you say this, but officer, I just don't feel authentic going only 65 miles per hour. When I drive, I try to be guided by my deep inner voice. And my deep inner voice was telling me today, you can go 90. You should go 90. So officer, don't try to impose your rules on me. When I'm driving, I must be free. We have a word for people like that, don't we? They're called pastors. That's right. Pastors. That's what we call. Okay, try this one. Imagine an IRS guy knocks on your door and he says, the government has noticed you haven't paid any taxes for the last 10 years. Indignant, you respond, I understand that paying taxes may work for other people, but it doesn't really work for me. You see, I've got some things I want to buy, so don't try to impose your rules about money on me. I have to be free. Now, we have two words to describe people like that. You know what that is? Yeah, tax evaders, tax evaders, right? All right, one one more, one more. Finally, imagine a man dating a woman, and as they enjoy a nice romantic meal, he leans over and whispers in her ear, being faithful to just one woman would be too confining. I have grown to be in touch with my core inner self, and my core inner self, when it sees a woman who is really attractive, it wants to stare and to chase and to see if I can get her to respond. Now, we have a name for these kinds of people too, don't we? We call them, no, don't say it, don't say it. We don't say those words at church. Kind of a comical illustration, but the truth is this. We know, we know, we know that we were created to be free. But what does real freedom look like? Does being free really mean giving in to every desire I have? Or could freedom, real freedom, mean something else altogether? That's what I'll look at with you today. We are in a series called Vices and Virtues. And what we're looking at in this series is something that Christians throughout the centuries have called the seven deadly sins. Now, if that sounds a little bit depressing, don't worry. We're not only looking at the sins. We're actually also looking at the corresponding virtue. Here's the big idea. Each sin is something that we can learn to take off, kind of like an old set of clothes, take off. And each virtue is something we can learn to put on, like a new set of clothes. And that virtue leads us into the life that God intended for us, where that sin would have led us into a kind of death. So that's what we're looking at. And today we come to... Well, we're almost done. We got one more week next week, but today we're going to tackle two of the deadly sins. And the two deadly sins that we're going to look at today are actually associated with our appetites, with our desires. Now, 
As a man, and I'll just speak for the men for a minute, as a man, when I think about desires or appetites, there are typically three that I think of, right, men? Three, three appetites and desires. There's, there's food, right? We know that. And, and then there's, well, food. Uh, and then there's the other one, coffee. Coffee is the answer, right? Coffee is the third. No, of course. I mean, when we know that these two deadly sins are actually gluttony and lust, Gluttony and lust, which is what Christians have referred to as the sins of the flesh. Doesn't that sound... I need an accent to say that, like in English, sins of the flesh. I don't know what that... That's not even in English. The sins of the flesh are part of what C.S. Lewis says are, are the part that we share with the rest of the animal kingdom. You, you think about the human brain. It, it takes a human brain to sin in the, by having pride or envy or greed. But it only takes an animal brain to sin in the area of gluttony and lust. They, they are the sins that are connected to our body, the sins of the flesh. Now, what's common to these two is that the remedy is actually the same for them. The remedy to these desires is the virtue that we call self-control. And that's what I want to explore with you today. Here's my working definition for self-control. Self-control is the ability to do the right thing even when you don't feel like it. Doing the right thing even when you don't feel like it. Interesting thing about self-control. Self-control is not actually something we ever lose. Self-control is something we give away. And when our desires are ceasing to be managed and ruled by us, we discover that we are being ruled by them. Now here's the thing. We like to believe that as people, we are in control of our desires and appetites. But as it turns out, our willpower, our self-control may not be as strong as we think. A fascinating study done by a psychologist named Roy Baumeister. I just love this. Uh, He used the ultimate test of human self-control. Yes, chocolate. Uh, True story. Researchers took two groups of people. Uh, One group, they put them in a room, and in front of them, they put a, a plate filled with all kinds of chocolate. I mean, everything imaginable. And then the other group of people, they put in another room and they put on the table in front of them a plate of turnips. Now they asked the same thing of both groups. Each group had to resist the urge to eat either the chocolate or the turnips for 30 minutes. And then they were given a test with some, they didn't know this, but unsolvable math problems. What was really being measured is how long they would stick with it before they gave up. And guess what they found? The group that had the chocolate in front of them gave up twice as early as the group that had the turnips, leading researchers to conclude that willpower, self-control, is actually a limited, finite resource. In other words, the chocolate cake group had used up all of its self-control, resisting the cake, and they didn't have any self-control left over for the math problems. Now, as cool as that is, and you guys know I love to nerd out on brain science stuff. I love all that. As cool as that is, the Bible was actually pointing to this very same thing 2,000 years earlier. Listen to how the Apostle Paul describes this very same dilemma. He writes this. He says, so I say, walk in the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. In other words, 
you and I, you, we think that we are free to do whatever we want. But Paul says, let's be real. Let's be honest. There's a kind of desire tug of war that's going on inside of us, which means we don't always have the freedom to do the thing we want to do. We simply don't have the willpower. Now, Paul describes this in another one of his letters this way. He says, there's a kind of good that I want to do, but I can't seem to do it. And the bad that I don't want to do, I keep on doing. Our self-control simply runs out. But look at how Paul continues in this very same passage. But, he says, but, here's the hope. If you are led by the Spirit, interesting, you are not under the law. Okay, hold on to that one because there's a way out. Paul's pointing to to kind of a door number two, but let me continue. He, He says this, the acts of the flesh, that's the stuff we've been talking about, the desires of the flesh, when they become, they get into the driver's seat, they're they're no longer just desires, they're now acts. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. Basically, dinner with your in-laws. And I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this, and the verb here is the continuing, those who continue living, they keep living like this, will not inherit the kingdom of God. They will not experience the abundant life that Jesus offers. But the fruit of the Spirit, here's that clue again, the fruit of the Spirit, is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Okay, so that's a long setup for the big idea. You ready for the big idea today? Here's the big idea. If you remember only one thing, here's what I want you to remember. Big idea. What you do with, what I do with, what we do with our desires will determine our future. Fact. What you and I do with our desires will determine our future. More than our education, more than our background, more than our upbringing, more than our dreams, our talents, our striking good looks, what we do with our desires will determine our future. Now let me see if I can convince some of you who are skeptical about this. Think about your parents for a minute, right? Everybody got their mom, dad in their mind? Think about your parents. Your parents are where they are today because of how they managed or mismanaged their desires. Just fact. Uh, How about this one? The amount that I pay for car insurance, and mind you, I've got some teenagers on the driving list now, and I'm still the most expensive one. What does that say about me? Uh, The amount I pay for car insurance is a direct result of how I managed, actually mismanaged, my desire to go the speed limit, right? That's just a fact. How about this? Your deepest hurt, your biggest regret, probably comes from how you managed or mismanaged your desires. It is the one thing that shipwrecks and sidelines more individuals, more marriages, more families, more careers, more souls than anything else in this world. We will either manage our desires or our desires will manage and rule us. And that's a little scary thought, isn't it? But there's some hope. There's some hope. 
And this is why the virtue of self-control is so important for us today. Now, I need to say a quick word about desire because I've been kind of down on it. And the list that we just gave there from Paul, man, you don't normally read those words at church, but we read them anyways. They're in the Bible. Uh, You can take it up with God, not me. Here's the big idea on desire. Desire is not a bad thing, is it? When the Bible talks about desire, desire is actually a good thing. The desires I have for food and for companionship, for physical intimacy, to be productive and successful in the world, those are God-given and good desires. But when those desires find their way into the driving seat, and we are no longer, no longer managing them, but they are managing us, then those desires have entered into a dangerous territory. One of my favorite stories in all of the Bible describes something uh, exactly like that that happens. Uh, It's found in Genesis chapter 25, and anytime I teach on self-control, I just love to share this story because I I can't think of a better picture of why we need self-control in our lives. Uh, This story is uh, about two twins, Jacob and Esau. Maybe you've heard of these guys before. They were twins. They were brothers, but they were very, very, very different. Uh, Esau, who, by the way, was the older one by just a few uh, minutes, uh, Esau was the outdoorsy type. You kind of get this guy, right? Kind of rugged. He liked hunting and, and fishing, and he, he probably drove a big old Jeep, you know, jacked up high. I mean, it's, it's, that's kind of Esau. You get a feel for Esau, right? Now, now his younger brother, Jacob, he, well, he was the Californian, right? He, he probably drove a Prius, not, not too big into the whole, the whole hunting, fishing thing. But the important thing to understand about these brothers was that even though they were twins, Esau was older if only by a few minutes. And this meant that Esau was entitled to the family birthright. Now, this can be kind of a hard concept for us modern people to understand, but the birthright in the Old Testament meant that Esau would receive the lion's share of his family's inheritance. Uh, The idea in that day was that when, when, when someone would die, you didn't want to weaken the family by dividing the family farm into smaller and smaller and smaller portions. So you gave the lion's share to the oldest brother, the bulk, you kept it there, and then everybody else would just get a little kind of corner plot. The more important part of the birthright was this idea that in some some way, some mysterious way, it also carried with it God's blessing. That somehow God's purpose, God's favor was passed from generation to generation to generation through this birthright. Okay, so one day Esau comes in from hunting Jacob's cooking some stew, and that's the setup. We ready for the story? Let me read it to you. We jump in right there. Once, when Jacob, that's the younger brother, was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. Now, let's pause right here for just a moment. I don't know if you've ever lived in a house full of boys. Uh, I've got three. And let me tell you that one thing I've learned about boys is that food can be a very, very, very valuable commodity and a powerful bargaining chip. I've seen some remarkable deals go down uh, over a cookie or a brownie. In fact, there's a whole futures market that you can trade in in my house with Oreos only, right? That's, it's just kind of the reality of my house. And I think that's exactly what's happening here. Jacob, who's used to being the little brother, playing second fiddle, never being dad's favorite, suddenly, suddenly, 
he has the upper hand. And I don't know if he's joking uh, or if he's just shooting for the moon. I don't know what he thinks when he says this, but he just decides to go for it. And he says, okay, okay, brother, I'll give you some stew, but you've got to sell me your birthright. And look at how Esau responds. Look, I'm about to die, Esau says. What good is a birthright to me? Now, what's funny here, I mean, and this is supposed to be funny. We read the Bible and we're like, um, that sounds funny, but I don't know if I'm allowed to laugh. This is funny, okay? This is Bible humor. And what's really funny is what Esau is doing is he's simply doing what you and I would have done when we were 10 years old at the Walmart trying to get the toy that mom and dad won't buy for us for Christmas. Remember what you did, right? There's the toy. And you said, mom, dad, if I don't get that for Christmas, I'm going to die. Really? I mean, it felt like it at the time. Yes, of course. And of course, it doesn't actually work, does it? But we've all done this. We've all exaggerated the sense of satisfaction that a desire offers while simultaneously discounting its cost. And that's exactly what Esau does here. He exaggerates the pleasure and he downplays the consequences. In essence, Esau decides... I have to have that no matter the cost. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read this story, I kind of go through this little imagination exercise, and this is Aaron. This is not the Bible. Okay, this is Aaron. But I kind of imagine, I kind of wish I had been there with Esau, because I like to think I could have talked some sense into the guy, right? Like I could have said, hey, look, look, dude, uh, what are you thinking, right? Just call in some Uber Eats, I know it's 50 bucks for a hamburger, but it's way better than selling your birthright, right? I mean, just, just come on. There's some other options here. All right, if I could have said to him, listen, Esau, I know the soup smells good, but is it really worth your entire future? I mean, you're not just trading money, Esau. You're trading God's entire blessing. Esau, God's blessing. One day, you're going to have 12 sons, And they're going to go down to this place called Egypt. And God's going to build a nation through you. And one day, they're going to write this book about you. And he'd say, well, what's a book? And I'd say, well, uh, it's this thing with words in it that nobody reads anymore. But don't worry about that. Because the coolest thing is that one day, God's going to send his son into the world to save it. And a guy named Matthew is going to write a book about that. And you are going to be a part of that story. Abraham begat Isaac. And Isaac begat Esau. And down and down it goes to Jesus. Esau, your life gets to be a part of changing the world. Are you sure you want that cup of soup? Now, I like to think that I could have persuaded Esau. But something in me knows better. And of course, that's not the direction that his life took. Look at how the story ends. But Jacob said, swear to me first. Doesn't that sound like a little brother? He's been burned before. He's going to get this thing in writing or whatever it takes. Swear to me first. So he, that's Esau, swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. So Esau despised, literally the word betrayed, his birthright. See, the truth is that what you and I do with our desires will determine our future. 
Every time. Every time. So how do we avoid trading something of ultimate worth for something of temporal value? Well, this is where self-control comes in. And this is where the good news is found. Because with self-control, as with all virtues, this is something we can actually grow in. This is something we can actually get better at. This is something that with God's help can get stronger in our lives. And so with these last few minutes, I just want to look at a few tips, a few steps that we can take to grow in self-control. All right? So the first one is this. First, first one is this. And, and before I say this, how, just quick show. How, how many of you say, how many of you lift weights at least once a week? Weightlifters. Weightlifters. Come on. Come on, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. Moms with babies, that counts, okay? That's like, you got some biceps, I'm telling you what, come on, right? Uh, Yes, absolutely. Uh, The first thing that we need to know about self-control is that self-control is actually like a muscle. Did you know this? Self-control is like a muscle. Fascinating thing, I've been reading this book on what the Bible has to say about self-control, and and it interlaces with it some of the latest brain science on this fascinating research. Uh, Read this one study that uh, recently found this is how self-control actually works. Self-control in the immediate sense, when we use it, remember saying no to the chocolate, what happens? In the immediate sense, our self-control diminishes. We get a little bit weaker. We've been cashing it in. We've been flexing that muscle. Just like when you go to the gym and work out, your muscle gets tired and sore. But then with time, with rest, you wake up that next day and guess what? That muscle is stronger. And the same thing happens with self-control, at least according to the brain science. It gets weaker with immediate use, but it gets stronger over time with consistent use. And again and again, the Bible has been saying this for thousands of years. In fact, Paul, the guy we've been reading in another one of his letters, you know what his favorite metaphor is for the Christian life? He says that as Christians, we are to train as if running for a race. We are to train like athletes. We are to treat our Christian life and the growth of Christian character like we would a workout plan going to the gym. In other words, when we exert self-control in our lives, when we flex our self-control muscles, even though they get weaker for the moment, they get stronger over time. Which is why Christians for centuries have practiced certain kinds of habits to grow this kind of self-control. In fact, one of those habits is a habit called fasting. How many of you have heard of fasting before? Just a quick show of hands. Heard of fasting. Okay. How many of you fasted so you could lose weight, right? That's our number one. Yeah, we've done that. Fasting actually has spiritual benefit too. In fact, one of my best friends, uh, you guys know him as Aaron, 2A we call him because his name Aaron has two letters. Uh, Aaron fasts from one meal a week. And I asked him permission to share the story. He, he, he picks one of his meals every week, and he fasts from it intentionally, and he uses that time just to pray. And I said, Aaron, that just sounds stupid. Why are you doing that? <laughs> I don't want to miss a meal. I, like, I mean, I eat seven meals a day. I can't go without one of those seven meals, right? How am I going to skip? But here's, I said, why do you do this? He says, well, Aaron, when I do that, it reminds me that man does not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. I said, well, that sounds spiritual. And he said, it is. He said, actually, over time, the fasting has gotten easier because that muscle is 
growing. See how that works? I have another friend who's recently started something. This I just thought was, I don't I mean, this might even be scarier than missing a meal. I have another friend who realized that they were kind of addicted to their phone. I mean, you guys probably don't do this, but what my friend did is first thing in the morning, the first thing they did, even before brushing their teeth, was checking their phone. I can't imagine any of y'all would ever do that. But here, that's what, this was my friend's problem. So, so they decided they were going to commit to a kind of exercise, a spiritual exercise, that they called Bible before phone. And here's what's so great about that, because you know how addicting the social media thing is on your phone, because it's got all those little red dots that, boop, boop, you wait, it's like little dopamine squirts, boop, 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 you, right? that's why we keep going back there. This friend has taken that addictive habit and leveraged it for another kind of good. And now it becomes the reminder for them to do their daily devotion each morning. Now, am I saying you have to do that? No, no, I'm not saying you have to do any of these. All I'm saying is these are kinds of exercises that we can employ to grow our self-control muscles. First thing we need to know, self-control is like a muscle. It only grows with practice. But the second one builds on that, and that is this. If we're going to grow in self-control, we need to learn to recognize our triggers. One of the basic skills when it comes to self-control is remembering that it is a finite resource. Remember the chocolate on the plate. And every time we flex our self-control muscle, it gets tired, which means there are times when we are more susceptible to temptation than others. In fact, honestly, what I have found in my own life is there's there's kind of four things, uh, and sometimes they're related, but there are four things that make me more susceptible to temptation than others. Uh, and these four things are very simple. Uh, when I'm hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. When I'm hungry, I am more susceptible to temptations of all kind. When I'm angry, oh boy, I, my self-control is... Doing, when I'm lonely or I'm tired, these things put me in a vulnerable place. I'm more susceptible to temptation. And in fact, a friend of mine actually, uh, sorry, not a friend, an author uh, that I've read, uh, takes these four and has turned them into an acronym that he calls HALT. He says, look, whenever we find ourselves hungry, angry, or maybe hangry, maybe you're hangry, hangry and loner-tied, lonely-tied. I'm just trying to think, you can't really combine those. Hangry, lonely, or tired, uh, you are in a place of vulnerability. And what you need to do is you need to stop, you need to HALT, turn, and run from that temptation. Which is why Paul says sometimes the most effective thing we can do for self-control is to flee the temptation in front of us. Can you imagine how different Esau's story might have been if he had realized his vulnerability before he walked through that door to the house? Do you remember how the Bible described Esau? What was his condition? Anyone remember? Famished. That, man, that, that is, that's Bible speak for hangry right there. That's what that is. He was vulnerable. His self-control was depleted. No wonder he was not able to resist. So the question for us this morning might be, what are the triggers in your life? What are the triggers that lead you to give in to temptation or compromise where you know what is actually right? Third thing we need to do, we'll finish these quickly, is third, we need to learn to surrender to God's power. We tend to think of self-control as primarily a human endeavor, uh, but the scriptures paint quite a different picture. 
look at how Paul describes it in his letter to Timothy. He says this, For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. See, there is a kind of striving that we are to do in the Christian life that we often ignore. But this is not a striving we do in order to get God to love us. It's a striving that results from the grace and love that God has poured into our lives. Look at how Titus describes it. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us, compels us to say no to ungodliness and worldly possessions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. We are saved, redeemed, forgiven by grace alone. But that grace is also the fuel source, the power that works in us to enable us to walk in the Spirit and live the kind of lives God calls us to live. Grace does both of those things. And one of the ways that we begin to appropriate that grace in our life is actually through prayer. Uh, One more fascinating study that came out of my research. Uh, This article was featured in the Scientific American Journal, uh, and they actually had two groups of people. What they found is that people who prayed actually had greater self-control. They had one group that did not pray at all, and they had another group that prayed for five minutes every day. They took those two groups, they subjected them to those same challenging math tests, and the people who prayed stuck with it twice as long as the people who don't, which just kind of blew my mind and blew the researcher's mind. God's grace is an energizing force. Self-control is a fruit of his spirit if we will but ask for his power to work in us. And fourth and finally, fourth and finally, if we're going to grow in self-control, we have to get honest with ourselves about where we are out of control. Look, in case you missed it, am I saying desire is a bad thing? No. Desire is a good thing. God gave us our desires, but for many of us, for many of us, there is a desire or an appetite in our life that if we're honest, it is out of control or it is on the verge of being out of control. And if we let it run its course, if we begin to let it run our lives, that lack of control with that desire may just be the thing that does damage to our relationships, our marriage, our family, our career that cannot be repaired. Is there a good thing in your life that's on the verge of becoming a harmful thing? Maybe it's food. Maybe it's drink. Maybe it's spending. Maybe it's interneting. Could be anything. Is there a good thing in your life that's on the verge of becoming a harmful thing? Maybe there's something that you're embarrassed for others to know about you. Or maybe it's a thing that, if you're honest, you're not free to stop doing. What's your bowl of soup right now that you might be risking trading something of ultimate value for something of temporal that will not last? Can we pray together?